Hello, everyone. Welcome to Multiple Calls, episode 56. I'm Scott Hewlett. The quote, under pressure, you don't rise to the occasion, you sink to the level of your training. That's why we train so hard, is attributed to an anonymous Navy SEAL. But the origin of the quote dates back to the Greek lyrical poet Archilochus, who said, we do not rise to the level of our expectations, we fall to the level of our training. It's not a new saying or concept, and it's likely not new to you but you may have only considered it regarding skills and tactics and physical pursuits. You understand that if you are physically injured and sick, that all the hands-on skills you have at the ready are useless. They are equally as useless if your ability to be situationally aware, problem-solve, and react are hindered because you are emotionally stressed, panicked, or overwhelmed. Being able to recognize and address our psychological state is our foundation because it dictates how we process what we are experiencing and our behavior and actions. Figuring it out when we get there is as poor of an approach in this regard as it is for emergency incidents. What level are you falling to in the arena of your mental well-being? Do you know the skills and tactics required to maintain it, and are you dedicating time for the reps required to keep them honed? Who are the people that you aspire to emulate in this area of your life? My guest this episode is a friend and mentor that has supported, inspired, and guided me to continue renaming, reframing, and reshaping my life on and off duty. With more than three decades of experience as a health studies professor, teaching physiology, pathophysiology, and pharmacology, she understands the biology of stress and resiliency. She extensively investigated the experience of trauma in first responders and has built a case for how and why compassionate-based mindfulness theory and practices can build proactive resiliency in vulnerable sectors for her Master's of Science in Mindfulness Studies. She has helped to pioneer curriculum for those who engage in trauma in their work so that they reduce their risk of psychological injury in the line of duty. As one of her programs so poignantly offers, resiliency is achievable. You just need to reach for it. Here's my chat with Wendy Lund. Start out by telling me where you grew up and a little bit about your family dynamic. I was born in Calgary, Alberta back in 1962, the middle child of two boys. So a younger brother and an older brother with very caring, compassionate parents who lived in rural Alberta. My mother was a teen mom when she got pregnant. She had all three of us by the time she was 20. I want it to be said because I just feel I owe them a debt of gratitude for leading me into a life of compassion and generosity. They were, however, high-functioning alcoholics. And my older brother, given that he was the first, was never really wanted as a child. And that became very apparent in my upbringing. I grew up with daily fights and screaming to the point by the time I got to middle school, I was very embarrassed because we lived on the route to go to school. And my mom and my brother would, by this point, were full on yelling, screaming, F-bombs at each other. And what that did for me was I internalized that I would not be any more of a contributor to the tension in the house. So I became a classic pleaser, uh, mostly to my mom, and tried to offload the burden for her and didn't want to add to any more of what I could feel was sort of unwanted and not belonging between her and my brother. So that had a huge influence, although I have to say, and I don't really know why, I think child events like that can result in different problems growing up. And I think for sure in my 20s and 30s, it influenced my behavior 
leaning into alcohol as my parents did, not to the degree they did, but most certainly like others, I numbed some of that out and became quite a bit of a perfectionist, which I still have a hangover on, but I understand where that comes from. And so I can make space for, and I did early on that that was kind of my role and without resenting it, kind of accepted it. My brother, the older one as well, unfortunately was dealing with a genetic disorder called Becker's type muscular dystrophy that had been misdiagnosed until he was almost 20. That caused him to walk like he had marbles up his butt. So in addition to, from his perspective, a family dynamic that was unhealthy, where he felt that he didn't belong, he also was teased and bullied and made fun of in high school because of the way he walked. I had a lot of compassion and empathy for him and would stick up for him, but then I would get, my brother would take it out on me because I was a female sticking up for him as a male back in the 70s, which was a challenge. So I had two boys for brothers that would do the typical tease you, but they would chase me with pots and knives. Like they would tell me I was fat. I never was. But as a female, some of those messages were definitely drilled into me. And so my body image suffered, my capacity to be a, a huge emo reader in the room because of my family was difficult. On the flip side, I think it's part of what's made me who I am today because I have this strong desire to transform that history into something positive. I think I always did. So for me, it's not been as bleak as I think my brothers internalized it. My younger brother, who as a young boy repeatedly, his way of getting at me and my older brother was, he would say, you two are going to die first because you're older. That was in his mind. Ernie died at the age of 43, which in our family, we use humor, black humor a lot. We would kind of joke about that because it was a well-known, you're going to die first because we were older. But he died, he struggled with depression and died of an SSRI adverse reaction. So the drug he was taking to assist his depression actually killed him with a serotonin storm. That's important in my history too, because I have a respect for traditional, the pathogenic model and pharmacology. But I also have this history where the drug actually took out my brother. And he was given a drug with very little assistance in terms of challenging the root cause of his depression. It was, you're not feeling well, here, take a drug. And then the drug killed him. I don't share that often because I'm aware that I don't want to, A, frighten people for being on antidepressants. That's not my role. But I do feel the way I can deal with that and channel that is to educate people on ways of cultivating and dealing with adversity. So that's a lot of information on my childhood. Is there anything out of that you'd like to know more of? Did you have other examples of more stable, calmer dynamics when you went to friends' houses? And then secondly, did you have someone to speak to as an outlet or a guide or a mentor or someone that you could offload this energy to and give you some perspective? No and no. <laughs> Because the family, listen, the family was great. So when I say high-function alcoholics, they were loving, compassionate, but partying was their priority after work. They worked hard, played hard, and they weren't abusive when they drank. They just drank a lot, right? And so it was great news in my household when I turned 16 because I could pick them up from a bar. And I mean pick them up off a floor from the bar and bring them home. So my responsibilities grew 
And because it was a fairly large family, that culture was pervasive. So I didn't really have much other than a bunch of other caring aunts and uncles and cousins who all were in the same kind of a culture and upbringing. I I guess I didn't say much about getting married. I got married at 23 to somebody that just turned out not to be a good match. He was emotionally unavailable. We kind of swam upstream. And so that was challenging, but I had three amazing kids from that. And motherhood became a sanctuary for me to outpour and do things differently to change the way I'd been brought up and include my parents. And oddly, I watched my parents, as I became a mother, become the parent I needed when I was a child. And I could see from the outside, watch them fall in love with grandparenting and nurturing. And I know they knew watching it that they could have done better, but they just didn't know better. And so in some ways, I think even my parenting was a healing journey for my mom and dad and gave them an opportunity to do things differently because the drinking had changed and some of the addictions, for the most part, eased up a bit. How was school for you? How did that manifest? I mean, you could go either way where you could really struggle in school. This perfectionism you mentioned, did you really dive in deeply into your head and into school? I'm often told that I'm smart now. I never really internalized that. In fact, I wasn't an A student. It wasn't a shining place for me. I wouldn't even say in high school that I loved it, although school was a bit of a respite for me because it was away from home. And then I went in to be a registered nurse and graduated at the age of 19. And so then became a healthcare professional, which is often the case for first responders and healthcare professionals is when we have adverse child events, we often want to channel those experiences into something. We become these caring people as a result of our histories in many cases. And so at a very young age, I became a healthcare professional, quickly learned that I didn't want to do shift work for the rest of my life, worked a year in acute care, went back to school for a degree, worked in ICU, and sort of progressed very quickly into a career of academia. So I was hired as a full-time faculty at the age of 23. So I grew up quickly at home and then very quickly vocationally. You mentioned adverse childhood events. So for people that don't know, there's also a score that you can take for that. Like it's called the ACE score, right? And the higher you are on the ACE score, the more adverse childhood events you have experienced, the more likely you are to say suffer with mental health issues and addictions and and the like. So what do you attribute to you coming out of this in a positive way as opposed to the alternative? I don't know that I know the answer. I think I can hypothesize that the gifts my parents do have outside of addiction, because their upbringing, I know, created their own childhood. Like, they suffered, and there was transgenerational, all that stuff. But they also were, and are, you know, my mom's passed now, but my dad is still there, are some of the most compassionate, most generous people I know. I have memories of being inappropriately touched by a babysitter when I was maybe three with my brother. He remembers more clearly. I might have been three. I don't have a ton. I have very fleeting memories of that. And when my brother speaks of it, I'm like, oh, like, I actually do kind of recall that. I don't remember it impacting me beyond a fleeting memory. But I know that that's there. I don't really know how that manifested really in my life. Although I've also been raped. And unfortunately, that's a very common experience for many women. It's weird. And I didn't really get into a full formal mindfulness practice till about midlife at 45. But I don't know if those experiences or something in my DNA allowed me to see things more as an observer. 
which is an important part of why mindfulness matters, right? We get to decenter or look at the experience we have with some detachment, not ignore it, but to step back and go, oh, like, look at that happening or look at this happening to me. I don't know where that capacity came from, but I believe it saved me. Like I didn't fall into the pit like I watched my brothers fall in and then not be able to get out. You feel like you broke the cycle? I definitely have changed the cycle. I don't claim to have it perfect, and I know my children, well, they may or may not do things better. Time will tell. I think it all depends on society and the challenges that are in front of them. They have much different challenges raising babies today than I did that will make their jobs harder. And those same challenges are pulling on their own capacity to be well that I didn't have, things like technology. Yeah, so I think I've definitely turned a page in our family generation for the better, That might just be ego talking. You touched briefly there on, I think, why a lot of first responders or healthcare professionals get into the work they end up in. So maybe you speak to me a bit about how much of trying to heal and ease people's pain was also a way for you to sort of sort out and figure out healing and helping your own pain. I don't think I ever did the work consciously thinking it was healing. I just connected what I didn't get as a child. And because I had to step up and care so much for other people, that mentality became ingrained in my nervous system. So while the cause for that was adversity and maybe not having the best nurturing, it resulted in me channeling it into, but I can give to others what I had not been given. And then that became a source of joy for me. And I guess that would be healing. I just don't know that I connected the dots till much later that it was a healing journey for me to get into it. So I learned along the way, and I I suspect, although I don't know enough in the literature about first responders and how many, like what score on the ACE most would get into, although I speak more and more when I connect with especially students at the college, I don't ask, like, have you got an ACE? I just as a way of opening the conversation so that we don't traumatize people, say, hey, did you know if you've grown up with trauma or an adverse child event, it just means you're more at risk. It doesn't mean you can't be a first responder or an excellent one. It's just a note to self that you want to take extra good care of your engagement in this trauma because as a new student or a new practitioner in the field, they don't know that those things are going to maybe inadvertently take them out later in their career. And so as an educator, I feel like we just need to give them the information. And I've always just trusted people will take what they need or the seed will be planted. And when it's ready to bloom, I trust that it will. A lot of people can have some fear over things being labeled or unearthing something or identifying something. But I've found very often that there's some relief, right? When you finally find out, oh, this is what this is. That sort of ties into first responders solving problems, right? Very quickly, which is the best way to approach it is like, okay, well, this, now I know what this problem is in front of me. It's identified. What can I do to fix it? And then that can start that positive spiral. Yes. And I think it goes back to what makes me more unique in the whole sector of mental health and first responders is that cytogenic. And we'll talk about that. Because we're so steeped and indoctrinated by the pathogenic or the medical model, and again, nothing against that. Of course we want it. But to your point about we're trained there, we look for differentials, we get on scene, we figure it out, we're there to solve a problem. You can habituate the mind that you will feel better when the problem is solved. 
the more I get into the literature and the older I get, the more I talk about the over-medicalization of the human experience. And there's part of me that would love, wouldn't it be amazing if we didn't need to label it as a problem versus a realization of the experience? And there's this other model I'll just introduce for those who want to read up on it more that I really resonate is the power threat meaning framework. And I think I mentioned it to you once in a conversation created by the British Psychological Association, if I've got that right, in 2018. It's an alternative to the DSM or the pathogenic model about mental health disease, which really supports my comment about the over-medicalization. Is every bad feeling, is every problem pathogenic? or diagnostic in nature. I don't know. And I don't want to not acknowledge the comfort that it comes when, like, oh, this is what this is. And I get that. But I think that's because we are so attached to, if you're not joy-filled and happy all the time, something is wrong with you. Versus, like in this pandemic, there are natural reactions to long-haul global crisis that we've never been taught, including myself. But are we supposed to feel good in a pandemic? I would argue no. And so if you're less joy-filled, if you're more hopeless, but not at the point where it is a problem from a staying on this planet point of view, but can you see how that frames the experience differently versus, oh, this is a normal reaction to a difficult global experience versus what's wrong with me? I'm not coping well in it. Of course, I'm reacting this way. Yeah. So I definitely want to talk about the salutogenic versus pathogenic, having that mindset of focusing on trauma and sickness versus focusing on healing, if I'm getting that correctly. I've tried to hear it a number of times to frame it, (laughs) distill it down for myself. But I want to start with priming the brain. And I think you touched on that briefly. So rightly or wrongly, the way I've framed it for people, recruits, anybody I've talked to about a common thing is kid calls, right? It's very often message that kid calls are the worst. The kid calls are going to be the hard ones. You're going to really struggle with the kid calls. And you hear it again and again and again and again and again. And I think as instructors, when we hand these things over as educators or passing on information, that we really think it's good intent. Like I'm trying to front load this so that you can be aware of it, so that you can recognize it when it happens and you can make your way through it. That's the intent. What I have found is that if I have this dialogue in my mind given to me by someone else, a kid calls it the worst, kid calls it the worst. I keep telling myself that. The moment that a call comes in and it's a pediatric call, or I hear it's, it's a young child, I think I'm already ready for it to be bad. So it's more likely to be bad or impact me because I've primed my brain. And on the flip side, if I'm told this over and over and over again, how bad it is, and I go and I don't have the reaction that everybody said I would, then I think I'm a monster because, and something's wrong with me because I didn't have that reaction. So I'm kind of screwed either way. (laughs) And so what I'm trying to pass on to people is the best advice you can have is just take calls as they come. Go to the call, run the call. If something happens immediately or thereafter, then you address it and you just do your best coping mechanisms and live your life and be as healthy as you can and self-awareness, recognize what comes up and then address it and don't push it down. For me, I found that was a real mind flip that's been better for me and protected me better and helped me more than the, this is going to be bad and it is bad. Imagine if we prepared you for the emotion and not a call. I don't disagree that like the top 10 calls that garner cism matter. I think there's potentially problematic psychological priming 
in always discussing that these are the calls that will likely take you down. You're waiting for that one call, which just means your nervous system has heard that over and over again, and there's this level of expectation. Versus if we prepared first responders for emotional readiness, what emotions mean, how to engage with them, when they're good, when they're not, when it's time to seek help, it doesn't matter the call because I'm as equally worried about the 88-year-old grandma you go to see after you've just lost your grandmother and now you're struggling because your grandmother was your parent and was your key support in this life. You're not going to get schism for that call. It's not the call per se. It's our engagement with the call that dictates your capacity to be grounded or not do well. Everything I'm saying here is just an invitation to, like what you said, flip the mind over and our experiences. Just open it up because the truth is what we're doing is not working. If we go to 30,000 feet and look down on the first responder community and the statistics associated with PTSD and death by suicide, something's not working. And so what we know about the placebo effect, the nocebo effect, the psychology of expectation, what we do in our education, this is one area where I think we can open up the boundaries and talk about it isn't the call, it's our reaction to a call that dictates our safeness or our distress. And I can't dictate to Scott that a kid call is going to take you down because maybe you're going to be on top of your game at that call. And maybe you won't. And maybe this year you'll handle a VSA pediatric call really well, and in two months you won't. Resiliency is not a stable state. It's an ongoing checking in and moving in and out and reassessing and monitoring. So that's what I wish we would really teach first responders is that emotional engagement with tragedy and trauma. When you change how you perceive things, the things you perceive change. Right. A very pivotal moment, which I dialogued with you and reframed to help me manage it was a very difficult car accident. And then that brought me to the wanting to get the message out to people that as another thing we were always told that when you're in doing mode, when you're showing up and you have something to do, then you're less likely to be affected because you're in autopilot. It's when there's nothing to be done. There's nothing that you bring in that moment. It's already over people are already past, that there's nothing for you to do, that then you become in observer mode and you're taking in more things and then you're more likely to be affected. So this idea of like going back to the scene to do a washdown after a car accident or you show up and the people are past and it's code five or on and on and on and the list of things that are where there's nothing I can do and that's worse. You really helped me to frame, and this was part of me bringing the way I am on calls and you recognize and help me through it, that even in the moments where there's nothing quote unquote to do, there is a lot to do. Being present energetically, emotionally, not disconnecting, not being jaded, not putting walls up to protect yourself, but actually engaging and recognizing and being there for these people that have passed in this loving way, that if the father, the husband was to know that we were there being that way with their family, that they would be so grateful that we were there in that moment. And so then we can look back at these calls where we did everything we could, or the only thing we could, which is to be present with them and be with them lovingly. And we can have this positive memory, more in the tragedy, more in the loss, the trauma, it, you still have to process that. But 
when you think about that call, you think I was there in this way for these people and that's healing for me. And I think healing for them in that moment and then for that family, whether they know it or not. Is it okay if I talk about that call for, with you for a second? Yeah. I forget about the call until you mention it. And then as you just spoke about it now, I'm going back to our call and I can feel my heart going up a little bit and I feel like I could cry, not from sadness, but it was such a powerful call for you. And then the discussion we had, it reminds me so much of why you're in this profession and the power and the privilege of being in a moment of tragedy with another human being and letting go of the expectation that it's not always about a save. It's sometimes about walking somebody else home. And I said to you, I can't remember exactly, but I know you were struggling with this mom who had passed and her children. And I, as a mom, I wanted to almost channel her to you. And if it was me that had to leave, all I want is somebody else to be there with me and to hold my heart, my spirit, my body in a way that honors this moment. As tragic as it can be, it's more tragic to be treated callously, to be alone, to be neglected. Because you were never taught that, and it's never really taught in school, this is the kind of stuff I think we can add. We don't need to take anything away of what you were taught, but we need to add. And if I can share, and I always say to people, don't ask a first responder, tell me about your worst call. If you're a mentor, if you're a peer supporter, if you're an educator, if you're just working with somebody, ask the question, tell me about your best call. Can I share with you mine mm -hmm. as a nurse? Because I used to get a lot of flack from paramedics and faculty who would say, Wendy, you're a nurse. You don't get it. We're on scene for a short period of time. To which I challenged them. Your assumption, therefore, is that all nurses have this unlimited amount of time with a patient in a relationship, which is also not true. Sometimes we do. But it can be as fleeting when you have 12 patients on your roster our interactions could be very fleeting, just like a first responder. And why is it hard to lose your grandmother after you being in with her for 50 years versus if you only knew her for five minutes? Right. I had a call where I came in to, I was 36 at the time, got called into special, this gentleman with leukemia. I didn't know him. I had no history. Walk into this room. By the time I got there, they DNR'd him. He was no longer being acutely treated. But I was called in, so they let me do it. I walk in. The wife is there, who's my age, the mother of the patient, and a 16-year-old. This is a thick moment. This guy is going to die. And so I'm just, again, I'm not even into my mindfulness yet, but I'm looking at this woman. I'm going through my mechanical stuff as a registered nurse. Here's our medication. Here's what we're going to do. Anything you need, blah, blah, blah. I go in every couple of hours. I do vital signs. At three in the morning, every time I go in, I'm tugged in my heart like, Oof, what would I want if this was my husband? I had a personal attachment because we were the same age. And so I say to first responders, difficult calls are the ones you can identify with personally often. But here's how you can use that difficulty is like, what would I want in this moment? And I just caught her eye while I was turning him over. And I said to her, do you want to get into bed with your husband? And so we're in a hospital bed. She, she just started to well up in her eyes. So did I. Nothing was said. Tugged him over, tucked them in, put the side rails up, and put a sheet over the door. Because there's this unwritten rule that you don't do that. It's not the place to be intimate, right. so to speak. Right. That's one of my best nursing moments. I don't remember her name. I'm sure she doesn't remember mine. I knew her maybe for 20 minutes face to face. But I know that what I did 
is something she probably still remembers in her heart. And I couldn't save him, but I'm sure for the patient, this was an important moment energetically, right? If we trust that you can still hear and still touch, these are the only things I can do. There is no protocol, no med to make this better. And so if we started to ask in the culture of first responders, what's your best call? Tell me when you know you made a difference and share that. It doesn't take away the shitty calls and the bullshit calls, but it bolsters compassion satisfaction, which we know supports and minimizes compassion fatigue, right? If all we do is focus on compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma and preventing PTSD, what are we doing to cultivate joy and equanimity and compassion satisfaction? So is it also, you could think about it as, tell me about your worst call where you were at your best? Good question. Because I would put that one I spoke to you about in that category. Yeah. That will always be with me. But there's that piece where I felt in the moment, even if there were mistakes made, which I don't know if there were, but all of us were at our best. And I think that helped us all through. And I guess just to add, if people are still wondering, well, what did you do? What was the thing that you did that was that in that undoable moment? What did you do? And it's common in my mind, either verbally or in my own mind, that I'll speak to the patient. So it was a chaotic space. And this happens where you're in a chaotic space and everyone's split up and you're in multiple places and you find yourself in this intimate moment. It's you and the patient in this quiet space. And I'll say something like in my mind or verbally, it's okay, I'm here now. And that doesn't mean it's going to be okay. It just means it's okay. Like you have someone with you now and we're here to do what we can for you. And then while working on her, I knew that my other colleagues were working on the children. And I remember saying in my mind to her because the paramedics were around and this was my sort of my dialogue with her in my mind is as soon as they have you, I'm going to go help your children. And then I did. And then you get over there and even verbally, it's like, they're like my own children, right? It's like, it's okay. Again, it's not okay. Like this is okay. Or it's going to be okay, but it's okay. Cause we're here with you. Yeah. So I get emotional about it too. But in that positive way, as in like, this is the helping people. We think of these things as like, we want to help on the fringe. We want to cut the car. We want to pull them out of the house. Like obviously all this helps, but I think we're afraid. I think it's fear-based, right? And we want to protect ourselves. We want to protect each other. So we say, don't dive in. Don't get too close because it's dangerous. Maybe it is for some people. I don't want to speak for everybody. But I think from you and I talking, the way we are talking about things is that when you do dive in and go through to the other side, that there is so much more there that's good for you. And you've done so much more to help people by doing that. Two things I want to say. If you're listening and you're feeling into this, just notice that. But when I think about what we've just said, and you've done Reach for Resiliency, about low-impact debriefing, which is really what we've just done. We've talked about the heaviest call of your life without sliming each other or the listener. No details. I think everybody gets what we're talking about. Respect for the patients. Respect for the call. Respect Respect for the families. Because we don't want to, and I teach low-impact debriefing, it's not the gore and the trauma we want to give each other. Not at all. It's this like, oh my God, this was a tough moment, but I had this amazing the most beautiful, intimate moment with another human being. If we honor that as a privileged space, it's okay. And that later, even though it may be difficult in the moment, later gives you the get up and go to go back and do this. And I suspect the next time you have to show up at a call similar to that, I believe you will be inspired to be even more present in that moment. Because you trust that it's good. And you realize that you were there to love people 
when their loved ones aren't there to love them. Right. And if you ask any first responder why they got into it, that would be their answer, right? It's always like, I want to help people. Okay, don't forget that. They might not know the full extent of what they're capable of helping people. And we teach people a lot of skills and techniques and tactics that are, quote unquote, the way we help people. But we don't talk a lot about how you can intimately and closely, as a person, as a human being, help somebody. So is it because we're not educating fully on that? Is it because we don't give people permission that it's okay if you do that? I'm not worried when I speak about this and the way that I view people and the way I help that I'm going to get slammed for it or how people judge me for it. They think I'm not gritty enough. It's like I'm comfortable enough in my grit that I can also, again, in the other hand, hold this piece of me. Mm -hmm. Do we not give enough people permission to open up and allow for them to hold these two viewpoints, integrate them in their minds? I don't believe, but no pooping on the undergraduate of any program for first responders. It goes back to culture. So in education in North America, these discussions, emotional regulation, emotional intelligence, somatic intelligence, processing emotions, is done nowhere. And then you get into first responder curriculum where you attach paramilitary culture into it and a crisis pathogenic model where it's all about the protocol and saving a life. And we train first responders, for the most part, in exquisite education for about 5% of the call volume, right? You're trained as a firefighter for the worst fire. You're trained as a paramedic for the worst call. But that's not the reality of the job. And I think that's where I'm starting to see discussions in undergraduate where they're starting to recognize changing the brochure. And with that change in the brochure and recognition of the catastrophic statistics in the mental health of first responders and people like you and me, I feel like we've been disruptors kind of inviting in without making it too woo-woo and too soft because you're right. It's all or nothing in society in most corners of any debate. You're either all grit or you're not. And the truth is that all or nothing thinking gets us into more trouble, I think, in every domain of life than anything else. Politically, socially, relationships, you're either good or you're bad. You're either healthy or you're not. I think it'll change, but these kinds of discussions at least open the door for those who've been stuck or believe they can't open up emotionally. Because if they do, they are then weak, which is very closely attached to the stigma we have in mental health, especially for first responders, that opening up emotionally means you are less capable of showing up in a moment of crisis where we need leaders. And it doesn't mean you can't do the job, right? You know that. You, you can show up in any scene and manage a call and still not be an asshole. Like that's, the, the options are Or lots. be cold and removed. Right. And it's funny, when I teach Reach for Resiliency 3, which is all about compassion, uh, the biggest resistance I have from first responders is that workshop. And I've had many big leaders in the peer support team come back to me and say, Wendy, this is wrong. Like you should not be teaching first responders to be more compassionate. And I'm like, I kind of smile because they don't know the literature. And I'm like, go oh, tell me more. And they're like, that's, you're putting them at risk. That's where people get into trouble when they lean too much into a call. And I'm like, oh, okay. But here's the thing. And when I teach it, it's here's what the literature says. And the reason why you need a mindfulness support is so that you can be monitoring the self. So that of course, if you get to a call, if you're exquisite in your practice and you can check in with the self and go, how much can I lean in on this call? Like, where's Wendy at? 
And then if I show up on a call, it's like, oof, I'm already like struggling in my own life. I'm tired. It's fourth shift. I'm just going to not be the jerk on this call, but I'm not going to be able to pour my emotional side in. Yeah. And speaking of this isn't saying that you need to be this way at all. It really starts with self-awareness and go, what place am I in? I know I'm capable of giving this much now. Right. And that's a whole other rabbit hole of the self-awareness of self-healing so that you can help heal others. And that's not an on and off switch. It's a sine wave. Personal distress is important to know because that is the door opener for a first responder to be skillful on a call versus I don't want to be prescriptive and say, this is how you operationalize compassion in the field. I just want you to know that first check in and notice personal distress. And if you're leaning in emotionally to a call and it is becoming overwhelming for you and without the practice, you're not going to know that, then you downregulate. You like kind of step back emotionally, do the job, or you can lean in a little bit more knowing that maybe at the end you're going to have a little cry and it's going to be tough, but you know you did your best. Right, because we don't do anybody any good if we go into the house fair or lay on the floor with them and end the sadness right. and the tragedy and let it all collapse on us. Right. That's not what's being said. Right. So we're putting this presentation together and this will get us into how we identify things, which, we're, which is really what we're talking about here. And I think the message we want to get out is how to be balanced. And that there's that idea of work-life balance, and it's become a buzzword, and semantics matter, right? And, and some words get hijacked, and they lose their meaning, and we have to come back to them. This is just the human experience. But I think a way to frame it for people is balance, right? You're balancing this, the right amount of grit with the right amount of compassion, and you have the ideal that you could strive towards to perform on a call. And a lot goes into preparing yourself to be able to go in and do that work. Initially with the title, I have it as Balanced Warrior. So then we got into the the word warrior and why that is not necessarily ideal to identify with the word warrior, hero, and any first responder, that, I, mean, I shouldn't say any, maybe there's two out there of all the millions that would be like, they identify with themselves as a hero. It's not common that after any call, someone says, I was a hero. Because we do feel, I was trained, there was an expectation, I showed up, I'm not the only person on this call, a lot of things had to come together for me to be on this call, we all worked together, it was a team, we did our job. And I don't think it's feigned humility by people saying that they don't feel like they were here, but they really do. I don't think that's going on. And if it is, then we have a few sociopaths in, in our midst and that we just can't do, we can't do anything about that. But what I'm trying to, to lead up here to is identifying with things and how when you identify things and you prime the brain. So we are around, do we use the word warrior? Do we use the word responder? Because words matter. So maybe you can just, that's a lot, but maybe you can just talk around identifying things and how that frames how we see ourselves and others. I think one of the things I've been useful in my journey with first responders and teaching over the years, because I met up with a lot of resistance being the only female and technically not a first responder by some people 15 years ago, tons of resistance about using the word mindfulness, about looking at emotions. And I can see as an outsider, and I also have, which I didn't mention, a very strong military family. Like most of my uncles were in the military. My cousin was the seventh soldier killed in Afghanistan, Brom Woodfield. My son is now a cyclone helicopter in the Royal Air Force, and my daughter's in the Navy. They don't even use the word or identify. They were just here last weekend, and we were having this discussion off of yours about identifying as warrior. It gets used, but it's not a cultural for the circles they swim in anyway. 
And so if we're going to reframe things and linguistics and language matter, then I think it's an important topic. And I'm not saying I'm right, but as an outsider from a beginner's mind, when I hear the word hero and warrior, it also psychologically primes and identifies your role. So are you showing up to war, which means your nervous system needs to be ready for that, which is the opposite of what I would like to see happen in training, where we teach you to understand where you're at and balance out strong emotional responses or a rising sympathetic adrenergic heightening of things going on and appreciate them without using war language or hero. Because what that means is if you didn't win the battle, who are you now in this moment? If you weren't the hero, or how do you know that you're the hero? So if there's not a save, who are you on this call? And we know that many first responders that leave their profession for psychological injuries or burnout, or they get taken out with a physical injury, struggle because they no longer have the uniform on. That identity of who they are can be so ingrained in their DNA that when they lose it, and they can't put on the uniform for whatever reason, they struggle worse because they've blended their DNA with this image of who they were. So what if as a first responder, you identified with what you do for a living versus who you are as a person? It's a reflection I just offer up. Consistency, which is also we've spoken about, for me, less stressful. When you can show up in any situation you're in and you're just you, I'm the same with you right now as I am with my family, as I am at work. I don't change as far as I know. I don't put on a different front. I'm just me. I don't have to manage these different personalities and think I need to put on this mask to protect myself here and this mask to protect myself here. And and sometimes like through, we just talked about the ACE scores, like sometimes we grew up having to put on masks and fronts and different personalities in order to survive. And that does happen. I guess I'm speaking in ideals here. The ideal would be to be be able to show up and be who you are as a person. And then instead of finding different words, and this was part of our discussion too, I'm just offering it up here for, for people to think about, is it more about how we redefine those words? How I define the word warrior might be a more balanced approach than the, I guess to put it in terms of the culture with that old school, suck it up, right? Be a man. Or the other side of things was fully fall into your emotions. Again, the other end of the spectrum would be lay down on the floor with them and, and just embrace the tragedy and you're part of it now. Those are too far into the spectrum. What I'm saying is there's times where you do have to suck it up. There's a lot of times I have to just suck it up and do it. And that's okay. And I need that mentality in that moment. But I've also spoken just previously about where there's moments I'm not. Right, I don't have to. We can't speak without using words and contrast, like soft, as in soft is nice and hard is bad. And the way we label these things, and I know I get stuck on words, and, and that's why I'm glad we're having the discussion over that word warrior. It's like, well, this is what matters. Like words matter because words frame how we see ourselves and see each other. So if we identify with our career as this continuity, this journey, this path, then Yes, a change might be difficult to navigate, but you are aware of that continuity of who you are and you're going to transition. You know you're going to transition out and what you're going to take with you and what you're going to leave behind. So it'd be a healthier, easier transition as opposed to no uniform, no status, no quote unquote power or control. And now who am I? I'd like us to figure out who we are now in it through our experience so that we don't have to figure it out. We leave it till later if I have to. I think what I offered to the discussion, again, it's not a right or wrong. I think it's an important reflection moving forward. 
I think you and I could talk just about the word for hours. What I heard you talk about earlier was authenticity, like who you are on the job is who you are off the job. And so if we label the job as warrior, aren't I having to change the hat I wear when I'm off the job? Like if we want to be consistent, and I offered up as an alternative, what if it was the balanced responder? Like that sounds to me authentically who you are, the goal for me where you need to be, and doesn't elicit a fight or flight response in me. You seek to be balanced and you are there to respond. Right. Right. That is the job you do. You're the first receiver of difficulty. You're the first responder to tragedy. And you're first person on scene in some privileged moments. And not all of it is tragedy. I guess the third R would be we're the first recoverer as well. Imagine if we enveloped all those. Now, some of those, like if I go to the birth of a baby as a responder, am I a warrior? Maybe if it's an obstetrical catastrophe, but... Think of all the calls, the 90% of the calls that are not the ones you train for, you're not on scene as a warrior. Yeah, I guess what I was offering was that the, again, we've talked about it, you know what I'm talking about, <laughs> I'm just framing it for the conversation for the podcast, but that the term warrior for me encompasses is all of it. It is this way of seeing yourself in life that you don't benefit by being the complete stoic, stone, cold, life is hard, life's not fair. And you don't do yourself or your family or your children any favors or your friends by being coddling and being protected and soft and not challenging, not pushing, not knowing that you have to suck it up sometimes. Again, those two ends of the spectrum. So we can use the whatever word we want. I guess for me, it was more of like trying to offer the people perspective. If this is the word that's being used, how do we reframe it? So people are like, oh, okay, I can still use the word warrior, but it actually means this now, not what I thought it meant. I think I mentioned to you when I started bringing mindfulness in at the college, I was told repeatedly, don't use the word mindfulness. Call it the mental gym by a PhD prepared. And I fought that. And that might be my, my thing, but I didn't authentically want to redefine, like I didn't want to not be authentic. It minimizes what it is. The rationale I was given was, First responders will not identify because of the stigma that it sounds soft. And so 12 years ago, it was like, don't use it. People are going to think you're hippy-dippy. And I'm like, I'm going to trust my message and trust the word. And that's what it's called, mindfulness. And of course, it's totally acceptable now. But I've been there where I've had to examine a word and its meaning and then watch a culture tell me, but call it this because it sounds tougher. But truly, even showing up to a house fire is mindfulness. You have need to be mindful of what is the structure? What is going on? Where is the fire? Where are the people? Where are they telling us the people are? How do I get in? It's all about taking in information and being present in the moment to face what you're facing. It's all mindfulness. It's just the word. But if we need first responders to become more skillful in self-compassion, compassion, purpose, generosity of spirit... Does that align with the word warrior? I'm just going to put it out there. The things I see as gaps that would really benefit the first responder long-term in their career for their own well-being are not words that align with that word. It's harder to change the meaning of a word over time than it is to just find a new word to use. Right, like responder or... a different word, or, right. yeah. You mentioned there briefly about when you wanted to bring mindfulness into the college. You mentioned being in the ICU, so let's just fill that gap there in the journey about when did you leave that and get into teaching 
and teaching paramedics specifically. Why teaching? Why paramedics? And talk to me about that experience. Okay, so if you have time, you can cut this out. But this is actually a very funny story. So I was 23 when I went and applied at the college, and there was a big hiring in 1986. I didn't even bring my person to the interview, but I was very nervous on interviews, and there were six people going to be in this interview, including the dean, and I thought, this will be good practice. So I'd literally run into the interview not thinking for a nanosecond they're going to hire me, but I just wanted to get over that anxiety. You needed two years of clinical experience to apply. They spent the first 12 minutes going over my resume. These are with all big wigs in the room at a big board table. And they're like, how many hours did you work here? You did the, how many weeks at this job? And I'm like, oh, God, I don't belong here. And it was painful. And after they figured out I had the two years, the dean turns to me and says, well, Mrs. McGillis, which was my name at the time, tell us what you think your strengths will be here at the college, to which after 10 minutes of feeling like I didn't belong, I was like, well, it's not years of experience, is it? And I was like this, and nobody cracked a smile. I was like, oh, no. oh my God, I'm dying <laughs> tough here. Tough room, tough room. Tough room. And they hired me. And so I taught in the nursing program just about every course for the first 14 years while I worked part-time in ICU and acute medicine. Those were my kind of specialties. I don't even remember how, except I taught the sciences. That was the thing I loved, the anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology, which is the thing most people, students and teachers, do not want to teach because you can't stand up and just tell war stories. you got to know your shit. But I loved them. And then they needed one in the paramedic program. And then I got slapped into it and I did all the sciences. I was the only science lead which I'm so grateful for because the level of students we get in the paramedic program is huge. It's a two- and a four-year program. And most students that came into that program were already pre-degreed in kinesiology, so their science was high. So that's how I got into paramedicine. That's how I got into the sciences. And then I helped to coordinate the program. And then I became increasingly curious as well as concerned because as the only female in the faculty full-time, I was the one students gravitated towards as they were navigating the stressors of the program. And I would ask the male faculty, like, when do we teach these students how to, like, cope? Like, where's that? And they're like, oh, they know what they're getting into, which, you know, is the standard culture. And that's what got me with Dr. DeWalter DeVaris, who really challenged me at every point at the beginning, like, don't do it. Don't call it mindfulness. Don't do it. Smuggle it in. And he was like, show me the science tell me this works, which led me into that master's of science and mindfulness where I did a full thesis investigating the experience of trauma. And I sharpened that spear from a where's the science on this. And that's where I fell in love with the cytogenic model. So I don't know if that answers your question about how I got into the paramedic program and where I am today. But watching the students suffer in the program, knowing that we were graduating students who came in with pretty good mental health and left with significantly worse was concerning to me. And many of them were already suffering from compassion fatigue. Like they picked up some really bad habits from preceptors who were also burnt out. When you said they know what they're getting into, these are the moments where I love where I think it helps people reframe why they need to learn about this side of themselves. When I applied to be a firefighter, I knew I'd be going into house fires. Like I knew what I was getting into. So then why are you still teaching me how to do it? Perfect. It's perfect. So I know I'm going to be getting into trauma situations. Why are you not teaching me how to do it? Right. You know why you're not teaching me to do it? Because you don't know how to do it yourself. You have no idea. If they knew and they knew the importance of it, they would teach it. And you did. I think you recognized it and then you wanted to teach it. So let's get into that. 
I did this tweet, I'm going to say it because it's, I still, my ego, it's like the best thing I ever said was the tweet from 2017. This was a time when Twitter, you could only have 140 characters and anything not to write my thesis. So I was tweeting and it came and literally my, like my heart was beating. I knew this tweet was like spot on. It was gold. It was something like, when you teach a first responder how to manage a difficult airway, you'll save a patient's life. Teach them how to manage a difficult emotion and you'll save theirs. And that's what I could see, especially because I wasn't a first responder and that beginner's mind coming in, but really being able to see the program over 22 years and coordinate it and hearing from the students. The gift of that scene was like, where is it? Like, why aren't we teaching? And then the evidence of mental health coming out. So there's a generation not long ago that didn't know that this career was bad for you, potentially risky. But we're no longer in the dark about that. Yet, in 2022, in my opinion, nothing has changed in base training, despite all the evidence that everybody says to me, where's your evidence? And I'm like, but you have all this evidence that people are suffering and not a thing has changed in base training. How is that possible? And the point about that is, I wrote this article called Burden of Proof in Canadian Paramedicine, where evidence-based is potentially problematic. So I want to say on one hand, of course, we don't want to be teaching things that are going to be harmful. But it often gets used as a barrier to putting out the bucks to get things done. Especially now that we're in this pandemic, we don't even really know where first responders are. There's not even that many, that much being done from a evidence perspective or a study on the last two years on the mental well-being, except we both know anecdotally it's not good and yet nothing's being done. So all the evidence in the world can sometimes not make any difference. It's what we do and the common sense of things. And so I created this program, Reach for Resiliency. I'm not saying it's the be-all, end-all, but for sure it fills a gap of nothing to something, which is the start. Walk me through now how it got started at the college, and then you started Wealth Management, which W-E-L-L, well, wealth. You know, wealth is very often used as financial, but our true wealth is in our health, right? People are aware of that. So walk me through how it went from the college and then you starting up that company and teaching outside of the college. So the last four years before I retired officially from the college, I was doing the master's and I was branding wealth management. I had it in my mind. I wasn't quite sure what it was going to be, but worked with a branding company. Actually, I think it's beautifully branded, but it was about redefining wealth. It's not just about the first responder community. I do a lot of corporate as well, because in my opinion, we're all missing this content. It's just that because of my close proximity to first responders and my thesis was there, I can speak to first responders and translate the content into what they do professionally. So when I finished in 2017 my thesis, I thought after 32 years at the college, I wanted to spread my wings. And for the first time, I really felt confident. Maybe that's not even true. If I'm honest, I had the financial capacity to do it and not need to worry about buttering my bread. I could retire on pension and really without much risk, I was losing some money from not being full-time, but it was a safe bet economically. If I was ever going to do this, now was the time. As a passion project. Yeah. And then I uh, trademarked this Reach for Resiliency. I used the three theories that I really had been learning in my master's and wrote on and leaned the thesis up against. And I thought, you know, the stuff, when you think about going to therapy, for PTSD or depression, 90% of therapy is mindfulness-based foundation. And I'm like, why don't we teach people this stuff before? 
your call, for example, say you'd gone to therapy, your therapist would have walked you back in a safe space back to that call to do what I kind of did, to look around from your memory banks in a different way, in a safe way while monitoring the body and really lay down in your hippocampus and the long-term memory a different framework for that memory so that it didn't light up your amygdala. It's not a false story. It's the whole story. Right. But we can do this proactively. And I'm not suggesting that when I teach it, like I, I long ago lost my attachment. When I teach for reach resiliency, I don't care whether you do it. Like I'm at the point where it's not about that, even from an ego. We ethically and morally owe every first responder some form of base curriculum. Whether they do it, yeah, that's up to you personally. Well, each responder then owes themselves and their family and their friends and their colleagues to own their responsibility to take care of when their ignorance is removed to actually do something about it. Right. I know at the college, you've got 23, 25-year-olds coming into the profession, maybe even younger. They're not usually developmentally at that spot where insight and wisdom, they want the trauma, they want to get the uniform on, and they want to get paid, right? They're busy doing a lot of things we know just developmentally. But I believe that planting the seed is there. And those, it may not come for 10 more years when the mortgage hits them and the kids and the mundane of the job starts to erode their sense of well-being because it's not as new and exciting. Then they can go, oh, I remember. I remember what Wendy taught me. I don't think any of us feel that well. When I say the words, it'll click and you'll avoid this altogether. You'll do it properly or you'll immediately run out and do all these things. No one's saying that, but if it's part of the conversation, then you've heard it before. And we very often don't act until it's in our wheelhouse and we have to, but maybe they'll recognize things a bit sooner and maybe they'll know who to go back to to say, you, you mentioned this thing, right? And they'll go back to it. So yeah, at least it's just out there. It's just part of the conversation. It's part of that overwhelming onslaught of information that they get, especially when you got onboarded. And it's tricky, but even as a new nurse, I remember I barely knew my own body parts. And I remember nursing a woman who had mastectomy. I wasn't married. I didn't have any kids or have to worry about that. And you can get really caught up in, ooh, this kind of feels icky. I don't want to talk about it. Like, think about emotions and difficulty. And I just framed it as a nurse was like, I felt worse about not talking to this woman about sex life post-mastectomy. And I realized I didn't need to know what her thing was sexually or and her and her partner. I just went in and I, as if I was telling her about how to butter toast. Hey, this is your dressing. This is what the scar is going to look like. There's prosthetics you can get. Engaging back into intimacy can be challenging for some women. Here's a list of things some women care about. And I just give the information knowing that her ears are wide open and she will take what she needs. And I don't have to make it uncomfortable. It's like, here, here, here's what ACE is and first responder well-being. Here's what somatic intelligence is. You digest it, make it your own, but you got to give it to them. We need to be aware that there are minds in the minefield that we can help people avoid. I tell you, you see this, you do this. You see this, you do this. This is how you handle this technically. But there are a lot of things we can't teach people and we can't have them avoid until they experience it. We can at least, like I said, have the conversation, put it out there. It's always a dance, right? In your own mind and in, in, in the incidents you're in, there's time and place. There's time to be technical. There's time to be emotional. There's time to intermix the two. 
That's emotional maturity, is it not? I think it's awareness, right? I think about parenting. You're a parent. I'm a parent. I always say to people that whole thing, they know what they're getting into. Think back to the moment you thought you knew what a parent was, and then someone gave you a baby for the next 20 years. Do you have it figured out, Scott? I think when I found myself eating Cheerios out of the high chair when I was cleaning up, that's when I realized I was a parent. <laughs> but you know what, the what, what am I doing right now? <laughs> Everybody's doing it, but until yeah. you're in it and you have sleepless nights and then you realize, oh my God, they're never leaving. And their time is like, I, they own me, not the other way around right. for the first while. And you're exhausted. Yeah, I've, I've said often that anybody can be a parent for a day or a week or a month, but do it forever. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the difference, right? It's challenging. That's and the there is no manual, right? It's an ongoing presence and monitoring, right? And really good parent is doesn't mean you nail every moment. It's can you be there in the moment? And if you didn't nail it, now what do you do? And you're doing it in real time as an imperfect right. person, right? And can you parent to a child, I'm having a difficult moment. And even if you mess it up, can you talk about God, you know, I should have, instead of being on my phone last night, or instead of sleeping, I was on my phone scrolling for three hours, and now I'm really grumpy. Yeah, it helped recently for me to read something that said something to the effect of, as long as 60% of the time, or whatever that number was, I think it was 60% of the time, that your kids know, like, this is safe, you are loved, we are good. As long as they know that, they're going to be fine. That you don't have to have this again, perfection of, and I think I see that commonly in social media doesn't help that either. Or when I have kids, I'm going to eliminate, I'm going to do it perfectly. And then when that puts on you, and then when you, when you obviously mess up because you're going to, again, getting back to that kid calls are the worst. It's like, well, I need to be a perfect parent. And that's where the helicoptering comes from. And we can't possibly, they can't make a misstep. And I guess that's putting then on them this expectation that they're going to be, have the perfect life that you didn't have. We do want them to have a better life than we had. Obviously, we want that. But I just think it puts too much on you as a human being to be able to think that you can do this perfectly in real time in life where you have con no control over most of it. Right. And I think your point about being authentic, no matter where you are, is really the key. And I think for me, my mindfulness practice has probably made that happen, made me feel okay about who I am, not judge myself so harshly make space for my gifts, my errors, my mistakes, my biases, without apology. Unless you open up the mind and you understand how it works. So in the second workshop, we talk about, if you remember, limiting beliefs and habituated mind traps. And when I teach that even, it can be transformative when people realize, oh, mind reading, catastrophizing, always being right, the blamer. Like, that's not you as a character defect. That's just what this brain tissue naturally will do. Unattended, we will fall into these pathways of processing our experiences, and then we make a habit out of it. But often we internalize that as, what's wrong with me? To me, because I taught the sciences and I'm a nurse, I just give up the information, and then it usually awakens enough for somebody like, oh, I didn't know that about my mind, or I didn't know that about emotions, like gratitude. When I say that to a first responder, often it's like, okay, so we're just going to sugarcoat this shitty call. I'm like, no, actually, here's what the science says. Here's what it actually is. And here are some examples. And when I talk about tragedy in a moment that you show up as a first responder is the birthplace of PTSD, which is what you all worry about. 
I remind everybody it's also the birthplace for post-traumatic growth. And it's not a linear, you turn right and have growth, or you turn left and you have PTS. It's a, I may feel like shit for a while, but that might be the path to the growth if you invite it. PTSD might be part of the journey of post-traumatic growth. In fact, I would argue it almost always is is part of the path. Very few people show up in a moment of difficulty and are enlightened without any difficult emotions. That's not being human for most of us. But we don't say that to people. And we have trouble with three steps forward, two steps back. We have a real problem with that. Like if I do these things, I should be in a linear way getting better. Social media is making that even harder because it presents the best, right? So we are very subtly, I don't even think it's subtle anymore. I think we're at a point that we've been on social media enough that this idea that your life should be one big, beautiful Instagram story of highlighted moments. Because none of us want to look at anybody's account where all this shit is shown. We don't go on social media for that either. Yeah, so is it more just recognizing what it is for? Like you, you want to go in, if you're going into the space, this is what it is. It's maybe a lighter, happier, like, why do you watch junk television? Why do you have, I just want to watch something brainless on television. Well, you could say it's not healthy. It's probably not healthy to do it. That's all you watch. But once in a while, maybe you just need something mindless. You need to watch Seinfeld and have a laugh. Like, So if we could recognize social media for, or you want to use it in that way, there are ways to dive into it deeper and get more out of it. But again, it's, it's a tool. So how you use it is up to you. If we started to look at social media as a bottle of vodka, maybe people would understand the addiction problem with it. And the point about social media is it is not inherently bad. Neither is a couple of bottles of beer. Neither is marijuana. It's our engagement with any tool that makes it good or bad. And that's where the awareness comes. If I'm consistently moving to a mindless, numbing strategy, cheesecake, not talking to my partner, avoidance, then that's where my growth plate is. But you need awareness. Right. Where avoidance is beneficial in small doses. Correct. And that's why even showing up unseen, I think, like, to your point about, I think when you become a seasoned first responder, I've always said that just the way you did, you have cognitive and emotional space to see the tragedy because you're not as fixated on the protocol, right? New first responders on scene are excited to get there. They want it all, right? But they're so busy just trying to get their protocol straight that their focused attention is right there. And so that might be very protective for them. But I think you're right. Once you get into muscle memory into your job, now you can see other things on scene that you weren't noticing before. Right. You go from micro to macro to micro to macro. And so maybe that explains to people like, why am I feeling less well in my career six years into it than I was in year one? Well, what if I told you maybe it's because you're seeing more because you're not as focused on because you're good at your job. And if you didn't know getting into it that you had stuff to deal with before you got in because we don't come in as blank slates. Ignorance is a bad word. Like it's labeled as a bad word. But if we're just ignorant to something, we just didn't know. Right. right? And people that taught us or didn't teach us, they had all the best intent, but they didn't know about some things too. So I never want to label it as these people before us, the things they taught us, they, they did us harm. That's not what this is about. It's about there's things that we don't know right now that we're doing with good intent to help people that we're probably fucking up. Right. I'm very aware of that. Yes. But it's what we have right now. Right. And we're standing on the shoulders of giants. So we just need to pass it forward 
and they will figure out something else that we should have been doing that we didn't. And it doesn't mean I'm a bad person. I think just to circle back for me and my experience with my parents, where my brother suffered significantly in that same home environment, and I didn't. I don't know why, but for some reason, that capacity to appreciate that there wasn't a malicious intent behind my parents' drinking, and thank goodness they weren't abusive, so I didn't have that. I think that's what allowed me not to get so messed up, where my brothers took it personally, very personally, like into their bones, and carried it with them in a different way. And we didn't have the skills, and my parents didn't have the skills to navigate that. That's kind of what I want to share, how I got that gift. I'm not saying I'm perfect. There, I'm sure there's stuff... There are times lately I wonder, and you'll appreciate this, Scott, it's hard. When you practice mindfulness so much in emotional regulation, I no longer respond reactively like I did 20 years ago. Like I used to cry at the drop of a hat, like at Hallmark commercials, like I'd be a weeping willow. And now I'm like, I can feel things come up, but I can regulate them. Yeah, it's not pushing it down. It's not denying it. it you just experience it differently. But there's sometimes I think maybe I should cry more. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like maybe I'm regulating it too much. Like not to, you don't want to get rid of all the emotions because the emotional landscape is actually what makes the human experience. There is no risk to you to completely fall apart as a mess. And you know you're not going to stay there. There's so much good that comes from that. I remember reading recently, I think it was from Alex on Instagram, who was talking about tears. And I'd noticed this maybe 10 years ago. I don't know if you've ever noticed. If I were to cry at a movie, your tears come out. But when I've been hurt deeply and it's a significant loss, like say a sudden death, those tears, they sting. The first few that come out that hit your eye, there's a sting in them. I'd have to look into this, but I've read that almost like the makeup of the salt content, like it's different. It is. It depends on what it is. I'll find Which it. Is I'll try to find that for crazy. you. It is. But when I saw her post it about <laughs> that somebody had noticed that, I was like, I thought it was just like crazy that I felt that way. But I was always like, these tears, like I know when it's like- Why is it so sharp? It's so painful, these tears. Right. But it also matched where the hurt was right. like deep in my <sighs> body. Yeah. See, this is the stuff we don't- Yeah. Maybe people do. I mean, obviously I read that somewhere. So people do know about it, but the population doesn't know about these things. But there's a lot we don't know about our own bodies. But you even got to pay attention to your crying which most of us don't. Right. Right? Yeah. So, and that's where the awareness comes in. And I just also want to say, maybe we've inspired somebody to maybe look up mindfulness and we'll leave some resources. But I talk a lot about McMindfulness. So if anybody ever sells to you that what you and I are talking about is just puppy dogs and butterflies and peace and equanimity, the path there is bumpy as hell you will inevitably have to deal with the stuff you're not dealing with. I often talk about backdraft phenomenon, especially when we get to the compassion work. Because when you practice self-compassion, the first thing you have to walk over in the realization that you need to be kind to yourself is the recognition of all the circumstances and reasons you've not been kind to yourself. Which might be a parent, an uncle, an experience where you learned it wasn't okay to be kind. And those are difficult and challenging moments. So we have to do really hard work in a mindfulness practice to find the joy and the equanimity. And it doesn't mean you're never going to not have them again. It just means you'll be more skillful when they show up. The expectation of a mindfulness work is that you come into it, hopefully, with the expectation 
the, it's the smallest of changes that matter. So if you're looking just to have relief from life, maybe mindfulness you're not ready for. If you are excited about tiny, small changes that will unfold like a domino into bigger ones, and you can be ready for a longer path and a journey, knowing that maybe a year from now, you might not notice things because they're subtle in mindfulness, that you'll look in the rearview mirror and you'll see, oh, like my boss didn't bug me as much today. Like a year ago, I would have collapsed under the weight of that or that call. There's awareness of that physically, right? People are always talking about putting in the work. Consistency matters, getting this many workouts. I'm going to try this supplement. I'm going to try that supplement. I'm going to try this diet. People are always tweaking to get the utmost performance and results out of their physical body. But sometimes they don't want to pay attention to the other parts of themselves. Or they don't want to do the practice. So mindfulness is no different. You don't go to the gym one day and do bicep curls and expect great biceps. Right. So you sit down, you go to meditate for five minutes. You don't, quote unquote, do it right. And you think this is bullshit. And in fact, I always say, if you're a first responder and you're new to mindfulness, do not close your eyes and go into a meditation until you understand the window of tolerance and the skills to navigate. Because most people in North America find it really difficult to be with their minds. So closing it looks peaceful. You can go to yoga class and be in downward dog, but you can be angry AF doing all of those things. Well, we've talked about how many emotions I have when I'm on the yoga mat. Right. Or when I get into certain poses in a certain area of your body, like that's where it's held. Like I know right. people are like, this is where I hold my stress. It's like, that's an actually legit thing. Yeah. Because I'll get into a certain stretch and it's like, like it just comes over. I'm like, what? now I just expect it. And like I said, there's even moments where I'm so emotionally hard that I'm laughing because I just can't get over how hard. Because you're watching yourself. I'm watching it. So I I think this is where my mind was going to go, was just as we can dive too hard into, say, the working out and focusing on getting the perfect diet and eating on the hour or every three hours and getting as much water in you, can we also get into, and this maybe this ties into mindfulness too, can we be in observer mode too much? And not be in experiencing life mode. Because we could be, I'm always in observer mode. I'm always paying attention. It's like, well, hypervigilance, I guess, would, yes. be, would be in observer mode. So, again, where's that balance between observing and not being hypervigilant where it becomes the new addiction? Maybe you can help me here, Scott. There's something called, and I forget it, I think it's called the Yerkson Dodd curve. It's a U-shaped curve and inverse. I'll put it up, but I do talk about that where doing too little of anything. Right. So that it's like the stress performance curve. Right. It's kind of, but it's called Yerkson Dot. You can reach, you got to be in that peak spot, right? Where you're not. There's a sweet spot. Sweet spot. Yeah. And I did all of those things wrong. Not wrong. I experienced the extremes when I started because I was like, oh, I'm going to become a master's in mindful and I'm never going to have another bad year. Like I'm going to nail this life, Right. And what I realized to my disappointment about a year and a half into it was like, oh, shit. I noticed so much more. (laughs) (laughs) And that's painful. Honestly, and to your point about ignorance is bliss, there is truth to that. Be mindful, you're going to notice a lot of shit. And so uh, there were points at the beginning, because I have a tendency to go to extremes, I still do, and navigating them. So it's not about me, Wendy, never having the extreme. What I've learned to is notice Wendy in the extreme and then try to come back. That's the practice. Well, that's the practice of meditation. It's not clearing your mind. It's recognizing when you wander, bringing back, bringing back, bringing back. That's the practice. And it's not about emptying your mind. It's being with your thoughts in a different relationship than you currently are. And just like the yoga mat, it's true. Again, it seems cliche, but it's like, where are you at today? Just because you've been practicing yoga for 10 years doesn't mean the day you get on the mat today, 
you're going to have a hard time in something you do, you've done a thousand times. Right. And I've had that it was skills. I've done a skill a thousand times. I go to do it once in front of new people and I fuck it up. And it's like, what is that? So breath work can be great, but you can be in a difficult moment and a breath doesn't do anything. That doesn't mean the breath work didn't work. It just means I need other tools. And the mind seeks novelty and our emotional experiences need a wide variety. And depending on where we are, gratitude might be really yummy. For me, it's the biggest pillar of my practice, but that doesn't mean it'll be for you. It's an exploration of what works with you, your history, your demeanor, your personality traits, probably your DNA, what matters and resonates, and then leaning into it without avoiding the stuff. So the other thing I'll say is, in mindfulness, people be like, no, I I ain't doing hand on heart, Wendy. Like, that's self-compassion shit. I'll do everything else, but I am not doing that. My invitation is, because again, I don't want to be prescriptive, is what most experts in mindfulness, the teachers will say where you are resisting going is usually where you need to go. And so having the awareness of having resistance to a particular area might actually be the most potential growth you'll get, but you got to go through that. Yeah. We don't want to practice the skills we suck at because we'll be reminded that we suck at them. Right. And that's that backdraft. When you talk about the awareness can open up, you might even at the beginning of a mindfulness practice question life. Like I'm just going to sell my house, quit my job and go live on a mountain and meditate. Yeah, well, I mean, that's an option, but that's the extreme. But I always say to people, expect that. Expect that you're going to question everything in your life. But in opening up your awareness, you'll come back down. You'll have this whoof, and then you'll settle back down like a fever, and then it comes back to steady state. And that's why mindfulness, you just don't pick up a book and do it and say, you have it. You need a mentor, in my opinion, somebody that can help you understand I'm having this emotion like a therapist, like talk me through, like, why am I feeling this? Like I want to move to a mountain. Yeah, I've read more often now about the recommendation to be curious. Why am I feeling this way? Where is this coming from? You start asking questions about it as opposed to being just overwhelmed in the emotion. The biggest thing you can do, I mentioned, is a kind curiosity. So mindfulness is, by definition, paying attention to this moment in a particular way on purpose, non-judgmentally. That's John Kabat-Zinn's definition. If you break that apart, it sounds pretty simple. Like, how could I possibly do a master's in that over four years? It's hard. We know in the statistics that we're really only present about 46% of the time one study did, which just means half the time you're not paying attention to what's in front of you. You're lollygagging in your mind about a memory. You're worried about something in the future. You're doing your grocery list in the back. So coming to this moment fully is one thing, but bringing the attitude to it is where we get the most out of our practice. And that kind curiosity is what's needed so you don't just like divorce your partner because you look at them differently all of a sudden, or you sell your house because you're like, screw it, screw the corporate world. I'm going to go live in the forest. You're like, maybe just be curious about my wanting to run in this moment. What's in that that I can explore? Talk to me now about the, and we've been talking around it a lot, but maybe we can get specifically to the pathogenic versus salutogenic. Yeah. So I love this because when I, in workshops, I will say, how many people believe we have a healthcare system? And I'm like, put your hand up. And invariably, 95% of the people put their hand up. And I'm the only one in the room that says, I don't believe we have a healthcare system. And they're kind of shocked because I'm a registered nurse, a faculty in health studies. And I'm like, we have a disease care system. Our healthcare system is completely founded on the pathogenic model. Again, disclaimer, there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, we want that system. But 
it subtly, again, to words, Scott, about health and warrior, for example, we have subtly taught ourselves that health is the absence of disease in the model of the pathogenic model. Because we say our healthcare system, but what do you do the first time you have a fever? We don't even internally check in with what we can do. We externally outsource and go to a doctor and say, fix me. And again, subtly, we sort of say, something else in the system will address my well-being. Of course, in emergencies, we want that. When I started doing my master's, I was like, I wasn't looking for this model, but you have to do a lot of reading in your lit review. And I, I can't even remember how or why. Nobody told me about it. I pull up this article from 1976 by Aaron Antonofsky, who was a medical sociologist in the States. And he created this model called salutogenesis. Salut means health and genesis, the creation of. And in the 70s, he was challenging the current researchers about are you like the health promotion ones? He was like, are you really health promotion theorists and experts? Or are you still attached to the pathogenic model? Because for example, if I said, name some health promotion things in Canada, you would say, well, wear a seatbelt, wear sunscreen in the summer, take your flu shot every year. Are those really strategies that promote your well-being? Or are they looking at strategies to prevent injury and illness. And so some will argue, well, that's the same side of two coins, which it is, right? But the salutogenic model, from a research perspective, and it's subtle, the pathogenic model is very reactive. We show up when something's wrong, when a symptom appears, and the goal is don't let it get worse. Sometimes we cure it, but for the most part, it's treat the symptom, medicate them, diagnostics, very reactive. And the assumption of the human being in that model is you are perfectly healthy until you're not. Okay, that's the model we know. You as a first responder are resilient until you're not. Your mental well-being is perfect until you're diagnosed with PTSD. Okay, so I read this article and it was like literally, oh, this is how I see first responders and this is the message I want to bring. The salutogenic model is completely opposite to that. And because we're in a dichotomous thinking, some of you are thinking, but that means I have to diss the pathogenic. No, no, I'm asking you to include it. So half of your life should understand the current healthcare system, and the other half should invite the salutogenic. The two sides make the coin. Right. So the salutogenic model is very proactive. It doesn't say what's wrong with me. It says, what's my best potential on this health continuum? How can I continuously, regardless of where I am on the health continuum, I can be stage four and still turn towards the health end and go, what's my best possible journey at this moment? So if I'm dying, the salutogenic perspective would say, what's my best death look like? That's different than the pathogenic that says, How do we keep you from dying? Just give me the best drugs. I don't want to feel pain. I want to be in the hospital. Not, again, if that's what you choose. But there's this alternative model. And what I love most about the cytogenic model is that assumption about humans. So in the pathogenic, it assumes you are well until you're not. The cytogenic model assumes that when you have many systems working together, like the human body, Based on the second law of thermodynamics, it is more likely for the systems to, over time, not work well together and for things to go wrong than it is for all systems to be a go consistently without any effort. So the salutogenic question that you can ask yourself every day 
even if you're dealing with diagnosis and illness, is what can I do to create my best health today in all three dimensions, body, mind, and spirit? Because the pathogenic model mostly targets the physical body. But we know this human experience, you cannot separate the mind from body. If we look at the word disease, if you break it down, it's dis-ease. And what we're learning in pathogenesis of most of the big characteristic diseases that we worry about, heart, autoimmune, all of those things, often come from stress and inflammation. So if we can manage the mind and master a moment and our emotions, the emotions of peace and gratitude and compassion get mirrored in our body the same way we mirror anger, resentment, jealousy, frustration. There is a biological profile for each of those. And so if you want to put a mask on, but you are angry AF all day long, your cells are listening to the biochemistry. The environment you're looking might be reading your face different, but your body is listening to the mind. And your mind's telling your body, this is a dangerous place. And I am really angry. And so, so I need to be in mirrors. fight mode all the time. Right. right. And so it's not about never having a bad emotion or a bad experience, but rather, how can I engage with it differently? And when I notice that I'm getting lit up, how do I shift back to where my best potential is? It was funny the other day when we messaged and you had forgotten something and you said, you said something about, I've got a master's in mindfulness and I still forget things. <laughs> I know, it's totally. <laughs> Again, it was labeling that thing as well. You've, you see, you'll never be forgetful. You'll never have a problem. Nothing's human anymore. Like you've super, you've enlightened, you've superseded it all. Yeah. It's, it's I, not I can about. I road rage like anybody. And now I laugh at myself. So it's not about not having human experiences, right? And you're human beings still. Mindfulness will just give you tools. When I'm on the road and I have a bit of road rage, I will almost laugh at myself now. I'll notice it and then be like, why are you being so bitchy at this moment? And sometimes I'll just stay with the bitchiness. I'm like, no, I ain't gonna do no mindfulness shit on this. That person's a jerk and I'm not letting them in, right? And I don't nail the moment, but I accept it. And there are other times I'm like, oh, maybe they need to be somewhere. And can I offer up this space? Because it isn't my lane. I just think it's my lane. Or I try to think back to the moments where I was inadvertently that guy. Right. Guilty. <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm like, oh God, I'm that guy right now. Yeah. And they don't know that I didn't mean to do that. Yeah. But it happened. I remember my dad being an Emerge years ago. I was probably 28, and I got a call. I lived in Whippy. He was in Etobicoke. That he had uh, full paralysis on one side of his arm. So, of course, I'm like, okay, stroke. I am doing 150 across the 401, flashing my lights at every car because I need to be in Emerge with my dad. And guess what happens? People see me as an aggressive vehicle, and they block me in. And I'm literally in my car going, no, no, no. I know I can be an a-hole other times, but honestly... I need to be with my dad. Like, if you knew where I was going, you would let me out. But people were like, oh, uh-huh. And they would block me in. And so when I have moments of road rage, I bring myself back to that moment. And I've, I remember maybe they have a dad or a brother or sister that needs them. And I get out of the way very easily. Or maybe they're just an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny that we believe them, right. that we believe our minds, that we know who the asshole is. Right. We, we default to asshole. Like if they're in a particular car, yeah. make. <laughs> I'm not going to say what I drive. <laughs> Talk to me about being disheartened, about working so hard and at your core caring so much about wanting people to 
have their own recognition, come to their own awareness, have an epiphany, have this flip the script moment in themselves. As much as like, here's the information, do it with what you will. We've talked a lot about moments of being disheartened and going, why am I doing this? People aren't listening. They don't care about it. All I'm getting is blocks. And then we talk about things that reinvigorate us. We have a conversation. It's like, I appreciate that. That makes me want to get back at this again. So this is the instructor life too, right? Or wanting to make a change in the fire service. There's things I've been still working on for seven, eight years. The faces change and I fire the email out again. I'm like, oh, since you're here, here's the thread is back in 2017. Maybe you can do something with it and trying again, as opposed to like, fuck all this. <laughs> so in those terms, how do you work through those moments? How do you perceive them? It's a great question because I think it disarms the myths and misperceptions of even the work, for example, that we do in mindfulness is this expectation that it will all be perfect and it will all work out. If you're curious, you I don't know if I've ever told you to look up disruptor theory and innovation. When you're an outlier, and I'm not trying to set us up as that, but we are definitely not the common way of looking at things, especially in this profession. And I have gratitude for the people that offered me significant resistance way back when. One, it was actually a safe place for me to be resisted. These were people that cared about me, and their resistance sharpened my spear. I have to quell at times, remind myself that I'm in the system that honors pathogenesis and does not know a darn thing about the cytogenic model. And so I'm a lone wolf talking about something that feels like there's not evidence, that is not awarded grants and research attention, is not set up and supported by a system, even insurance. The people I could be coaching are first responders, but nobody will pay for coaching, not an insurance company. They're throwing thousands of dollars at services now, but not to get somebody to help you proactively. You got to wait till you sign up for a therapist. So we have a whole bunch of reasons for why it's difficult for us. When I remind myself of how much I've done to open the door in Canada for first responders in terms of opening, I kind of always joke that I'm the Walmart greeter for mindfulness. I'm just standing at this big supermarket of aisles, of tools that people don't know about, and I got my little blue vest on, and I'm just welcoming. Here's what else is available. And then trusting, I'm not, and I never was, in charge of your journey. When I measure success of, am I making a difference? Daily, you and I can say yes. Does it get mirrored in getting onboarded systematically in an organization in meaningful ways? And I'm not talking profitable meaning sustainable ways. I don't know. But in my core, I knew at the beginning, this was going to take a generation or two. And at my age, it means I'm probably not going to see that change. And that's why I think for me, mentorship has been so important to do because I want to help others who are in the same space. That's how you and I met foster and support each other because we need a network of people that think similarly and know this area and the work because we've experienced it. But we're literally yelling and shoveling in a storm of people shoveling sand at us in a windstorm. It's hard to get the attention when people just want relief from the pathology versus the cultivation of well-being. And they're in stimulation overload with information. So it's like, just tell me the thing. Tell me the thing and I'll do it and then we can cut this short and I can move on to the next thing. The other thing about social media is it's cut our attention span down. So we're fighting. I don't want to take the time. But the truth is there is not a pill or an app. Not yet. It's coming. 
where it'll be sold as this will fix your brain. We'll put an implant in. Those are maybe not so damn far, but the truth is this work has to be done and it's not done in a day or a meditation. It's done over months. And most of us, because of modern society, are not patient to wait for that. It's more and more common now to be accepted with the physical put in the work, put in the work, show up, put in the work, work as a solution. Like I, I preach that and it is true. It's true that putting in the work is a solution, but it's not just the solution for physical things. It's the, it's the solution for mental things. And we, we should even mention it that they're integrated, right? There is, again, we, we're doing it right now because it's the way we, that's, it's thought about, but the physical and the mental being these separate things you need to put work in. But we all know we feel better when we're putting effort into our physical bodies and our physical bodies feel better when we're, when we mentally feel better. So it, they both support each other, right? It's a synergy, not a separation. They're not in silos. And even the exercise, I often ask people to reflect on And it goes back to, well, I go to yoga, I run every day. But if the running is really just an experiential avoidance of what you're feeling, of course it discharges energy, for sure. But does it do the work that sitting with thoughts and emotions, I would argue, no. Of course it benefits and sets up the environment. But running every day is not going to fix core belief issues. This is great. So then where can we... I wouldn't want to say easily, but the easiest way, you're getting up for your run like you always do. You don't want it to be this avoidant thing. Sometimes it needs to be. Sometimes you just need to turn your brain off and go for a run. You do need to do that. It's a good thing. Is it best to just, there's a moment where you can just say, why am I running today? Just start with that question and then that will open up the possibility that the run will be more beneficial over the long haul. Yes, that's that kind curiosity. And I often say, I try to tell lab techs when I'm in college because I know it feels intimidating and daunting to a group of professionals that were never taught what I now know because of my master's. So I honor that I have to meet them where they are. And I'm not trying to download everything I do. And I'm trying to make it simple. For example, you show up on scene for scene survey, right? What's the first thing you teach somebody? Make sure they're safe on scene. What if in base training, when you did scene survey, your instructor repeatedly time and time and time again asked you to check in with yourself internally? Where are you at on the way to the call? You don't have to fix it. You don't need to analyze it. But just that checking in, because we know that first responders often get into experiential avoidance. They habituate that. They push down their emotions because they believe that's part of the call and they never let them come back up. So small, tiny things. And the question you're asking is, not why am I running? Of course, you can give it. But am I am I feeling that I'm angry and this run helps discharge that anger? Okay, that's something new. And if it's just because I don't want to die of a heart attack, do you also know that your mental well-being is now known to be an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease? So if you're running for that and you are depressed, you just need to know that you might not be offsetting it as much as you think you are. Another way to integrate it into your work life, I can only speak to being a paramedic or being a firefighter, would be if you're driving, right, the goal is to be the calmest person in the truck. And so that doesn't mean you do one thing and you're just, you're, but you're constantly, one of the million things you're doing at once while you're driving an emergency is checking in with your body and seeing if you're feeling amped up. And you're constantly just resetting, 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 resetting so that you're loose and calm and you actually see and you keep your heart rate down and you can make better decisions. And then on the back of the truck, it would be get all your stuff on. And then if you have 10 seconds or five seconds, whatever it is to take one breath, kind of like feel your body, move your shoulders a little bit and go, okay, 
And then what's the first thing I'm going to do? Like to me, those are mindfulness moments in amongst. So it doesn't have to be this, I need time in the station to go off for an hour and levitate. It's just, and that's habit. That's operationalizing Operationalizing it. it. Thank you. Yes. And I agree. And I often say, and it sounds like it wouldn't matter, but imagine if you were taught every step into a call and out, you say, and I'm just going to offer this up as a word. It's not the word. It's the fact that I'm doing and saying the word that matters for the neurobiology. But if I said, thank you, thank you, in my mind, not out loud, I'm just like, thank you, thank you, thank you, or one, two, three, whatever you want it to be. The point is, what we know cognitively is where your attention goes, energy flows. So if I'm moving my attention to the feet hitting the ground, I cannot give all my attention to my concern and anxiety about the call. And if I use thank you, like, thank you, I get to do this call, I'm doing my job, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm stabilizing, I'm grounding, I'm moving my attention to where I choose it to go, not where my biology wants it to go. And then I do the call. That's great. And then when I leave every scene, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. That wasn't me. Thank you. I didn't make a poor decision. Thank you for giving me the opportunity and the privilege to be there. And again, that's a much different feel than ruminating on the call. Or getting out as you walk towards the house for the medical call. It's feeling the air on your face. Yes. It's noticing other stimuli. And that's the magic of mindfulness, right, is when we realize that we've never been trained to use our minds in the way we choose them, and we let the mind take care of everything else, right? So people that are anxious and habituate anxiety-type thinking, it's just that you've practiced it so much that it comes really easy, just like anger or resentment or jealousy, If you have those experiences often, I would argue you've habituated them so much that they come easy in the mind because you have these pathways that know, oh, we're just going to get angry. So let me go there first. This is what we do. It's a super highway. This is what we do. But you can build simultaneous highways for gratitude and self-compassion. And in a neurobiological point of view, it's not that you don't have access to the anger highway. It's that I want to teach you to build in a habit and a practice more gratitude and self-compassion. And now when a moment in that growth plate, I can still get angry, but now I have an option to take three breaths and go, I'm actually going to try out that breathing thing that Wendy did. Or you're angry in a different way. Right. You're less angry. You're not a 10 out of a 10. You're a five. Or you can express your anger differently. Right. And over time, you will find that you will get less angered by those triggers if we do them proactively. So I'm not speaking if you're really stuck in pathology right now and you're deep into struggling with a diagnosis. I'm speaking to those who are not into trouble, right? So that's why what I do matters is give people the tools and understanding what their minds are doing and the biology and epigenetics. Because what I found is when you give first responders the science, there's no arguing that. There's no hippy-dippy. And again, because I don't do the traditional like hippy-dippy stuff, People are more relaxed about, this isn't for me. They'll still argue the science. <laughs> Very few do, not to me publicly, I think, maybe, but maybe Well, I mean, do. we see it just even tactically, right? The, right. Si- the science is there and it just, just gets ignored. It's right, ignored. right. Not by everybody. I'm just saying it's still going to happen. And that's just a mindset. It's true. Like breathwork might look like, oh, come on. But in the last five years, look at the research on breathwork. It's phenomenal. And the books. and But again, people that are brought up not to believe that... Is the nocebo effect. Nothing, a taking a breath isn't going to matter. 
What is that? That's a limiting belief, and it's the nocebo effect. And what do we know about that? Your psychology is mirrored in your biology. If you don't believe a breath is going to help you, it won't help you. However, if you can change that mindset because the mind drives the biology that this might help, maybe I start to see the benefit of it. And then when you believe it because you see the effects, now you can really be like, ah, this stuff is good. Where would you say you're at with your mindfulness journey right now? Pretty good. Last year was very rough for me, like an existential crisis, not in a good space. I had to use every tool just to stay really it was bad so right so maybe speak to that for a moment because we've talked about that too right sometimes you are doing all of the things and all it gets you is managing and coping it doesn't mean you thrive so maybe talk to me about surviving so mindfulness doesn't give you lifelong immunity right so surviving living or thriving right and so you're still a human in this experience and you may be fortunate that you never have an existential crisis or a dip and so whatever, this pandemic has been tough. Like I used to do gratitude practice pre-pandemic and literally if I was on a like trip to come up and see you, I would be without the radio and I would just do gratitude practice. And within 10 minutes, I felt like I had won $80 million, like that good. Last year, I would do gratitude practice just to get out of bed. I didn't feel happy doing it, but I knew I was, okay, I'm going to trust the practice, trust the skill, keep on doing it. And so sometimes mindfulness and the things we do move us up the well-being ladder and feel better. Other times we do it to keep us from spiraling down. So (laughs) It's probably 50-50. It depends, right? But again, I just want to sell it again. The mindfulness isn't, it'll always be okay. It can be... The practice will be just so that you don't spiral too far down. And this is, uh, and then in duration of time too, right? So maybe Trusting that's a day. Permanence. Maybe it's going to be a year you have to be like this. But if you don't, what's the alternative? Yeah. I heard a naturopathic doctor speak mm, like maybe 20 years ago before I even really got into mindfulness. And he was talking about a couple of really rough years in his life. And he said, we're so quick to judge and diagnose and give a med. He goes, but I believe there's something called existential malaise. And then I found Viktor Frankl. And if you haven't read Man's Search for Meaning, read Everybody it. needs to read that book. But it talks about existential crisis, existential frustration, existential malaise, and the existential vacuum, which is really just to say there are going to be times in your life and maybe a couple of years that are not going to feel great. I had that when I started. I was going through divorce. My cousin died in Afghanistan. My brother died suddenly. My sister-in-law died suddenly. It was a tough go. And I was ending a marriage of 23 years, and I didn't know if I was going to be living in a trailer park. All the things felt heavy for a long time. And I started a mindfulness practice again, not for joy, but just like, ooh, survive. survive. And I had enough wherewithal into me to stop drinking at that time. Because I knew, like, alcoholism didn't run in my family. It galloped. And I could feel myself the year or two before reaching for a bottle of wine a couple of times a week to deal with the sadness. What I knew I needed to do, but didn't have the courage to do. Right. So this isn't a problem. This isn't a problem. This isn't a problem. And all of a sudden, like, oh, I'm God, sad. it's a problem. I am in a loveless, right. like, oh, my God. And then I was like, if I'm going to end this marriage because my children were everything, I'm going to do it with sound mind. And I knew it was going to be too easy for me to drink myself away. And so a moment happened, a very clear, definitive moment for me that put an end to a drinking career for me. And I mean career, like I had a very high bottom, like on the list that you can do the survey 
I scored like a four out of 20. Like most of us would probably score four. But I had enough awareness that this was the moment for me to decide how I was going to cope with this. And I literally was like, okay, if I'm going to get divorced, and I hadn't decided yet, but if I'm going to separate, I'm going to make sure I do it for my kids with a clear mind. I'm not going to drink my way through it. So I quit. And eight weeks later, my brother died suddenly, literally. And I was like, well, of course I'm going to drink now. Like my whole family was coming in from Alberta for this. He was 43. And then I was literally, I had enough awareness to go, well, maybe just for the next hour, I won't have a drink. Because I was watching my mom fall apart drinking and everybody's emotions get very heightened. And I was like, can I just not have a drink for the next hour? And then I was just like, oh, actually, I was the only one coping well that day. And then the next day I was like, well, let's see if I can get through the family without drinking. Like, that's never happened for anybody in the family. But I got through it without drinking. And then I was like, Oh, that wasn't so bad. And it propelled me not to. So in many ways, mindfulness has made me a quitter. I quit drinking. I quit smoking. Years later, I quit a marriage. I quit being the victim. I quit letting the world railroad me, which doesn't mean it isn't heavy. I just realized I had some accountability and responsibility for my life. Yeah, the more you quit, the more you own. Right. And so I could see, thank God, that I had a couple of pathways. One was alcoholism and drowning my sorrows and being high functioning like my parents were. And another was, what if I try this? And then when I developed mindfulness practice, drinking just didn't like jive with it. So I never went back to it. And I just am at peace now. So I don't feel like I need to numb anything. So I reflexively feel the stuff. It's heavy, but I no longer feel the need to numb. It takes a lot in a moment where you are drowning. You feel like you're drowning. It takes a lot to take an unknown path. But I guess we have enough evidence of going down the other path. We know where it ends. It may be unknown. It may feel chaotic. It may be more stress in a way to now have to take that other path. But the alternative isn't good. And I guess this speaks to, and I think I've said this before, about the benefit of if you can dive into this when you're in a good place, if you can find a counselor or a mentor or a guide or someone you trust when you are in a good place, you've got way more capacity to find the right person, to find the fit for you, to find the groove for you than if you wait until it all falls down and then you try and figure it out. Yeah, trying to cultivate a gratitude practice when you've hit rock bottom is not even going to land well. Right, so that's worth speaking to. So what do people then do in the rock bottom moment? It's not the time like, well, we need to read these books. And this is what gets told to you then, right? This would be the pathogenic model for mindfulness, right? Take this pill, read these books, do these practices, do all these things that you have. You can barely move. And all people are telling you to do more. So what do you do? So, okay, here's exactly in that moment, Scott, you do need help. That's what the pathogenic model is for. So if you wait until you are so far gone, my gosh, the first step you need is to find a therapist, a way out, because you might have gone too far down. So, Or you're in the hospital under watch right. for a week. Here's what I know from my moment. And so I was saying to you before we hit the pause button, I never talk about like my journey because I always want my teachings to shine. So, and it's not because I'm, a, it's on my Facebook feed, but this moment I alluded to a minute ago that I didn't share was I witnessed something between my ex at the time, my husband at the time, and my middle son. It was January 13th, 2007. 
And in that moment, and some of you will identify with this feeling, maybe not the scenario, I watched my son crumble, like be eviscerated spiritually by my ex, which he had been doing to me for a long time. But I watched him do it to him, and I saw this child that I spent my whole life trying to make their life good. And he left the house. He was 13. And he started to cry. And I knew that like what I had just witnessed was a emotional trauma for him. And I felt like I'd let it happen by virtue of just being in the room. And I know my ex didn't see it as that because he lacks the insight. And the next day, I felt like I'd let my son down so much. So if you're a parent, identify with this. I felt like I'd allowed a moment that I would never have allowed to happen consciously. And I felt like the worst parent on the planet. And I felt like I couldn't look him in the eye. So the next morning I get up and I take four sleeping pills and I have three beers. And it's 10.30 in the morning. I don't drink in the morning. I, I can drink, but I didn't drink in the morning. And it wasn't suicidal. It was just like, I just want to be asleep when they come home from school so I don't have to look at him. I was like, oh my God, can I just be asleep? I just want to avoid what I witnessed and what I know happened to him. And then honestly, if you believe in any divinity, I'm not a religious person, but I feel spiritual. I felt literally guided and every cell of my body was saying, pick up the phone and call your doctor. And every other bone on my body and muscle was pulling me away. Like, don't do it. People are going to think less of you. You know better. You should be doing better. You're a faculty of nursing. And I was like, no, no, this was bad, man. Like, thank God I had the awareness. So I pick up the phone and I call my GP, who I, had the, I still do have the utmost respect for. And he knew me as Wendy the nurse, Wendy the faculty member, Wendy the great mom. And I called him up and I was like sobbing. And I'm like, Tom, I need some help. And I'd been spiritually bankrupt for a while. He's like, come and see me on a Sunday. And I drove through a snowstorm to his office and he made space for me at the end of the day. And he's like, what's up? And I just am bawling. I'm like, oh my God, Tom, I don't know. And I, I got up and I had these beers and I took, I'm not suicidal, but oh my God. And he just made space for me. And when I was done, I'm a sobbing, snotty mess. He reached his hand over and he shook my hand. He said, I'm so happy you're here. And he said, full stop. The next bit is for Wendy. I was like, okay, I don't know what to do. But he put a plan in place. He called me every day on my phone to check in with me. A few docs would do that. And I took a deep dive. I took four months off work, and I did the work in some big ways. And that was, for me, a very high bottom. Most people would be like, oh, well, I've done that a million times. But for me, it was just that I had enough awareness to know, Oof, if I don't attend to this, it's going to end up really bad. And then my brother died, and then other things happened. And so it almost was like the universe sending me everything. But I think the point was, I knew in my body that I needed help, and that I wasn't okay, and that something needed to change. But I was too afraid to do it. So if you're listening, and you feel like you're in Groundhog Day, I never felt I was depressed. I just felt spiritually bankrupt. Like, I just couldn't get up and do it again. Not suicidal, but just, is this life? The mundane, get up, pay the bills, work, loveless relationship. I knew I needed to get out of that, but I didn't know how economically to do it. I was afraid. 
I didn't want to let my kids down. All shame and guilt. Yeah. And then to tell my doctor that I had three, like, oh my God. But anytime I see him, we talk about that. And I call him on the 13th of January every year and thank him. I'm like, I just want to thank you for being there. It's like, oh my God, Wendy, like you are such, you know, you're the best patient. I wish everybody recognized that and reached out for help. So if you're there, the first step you need to do is reach out for help because we're social creatures. And the research is clear when somebody else is allowed to help you, like if you called me Scott and like you did and I I get to help you, I feel good because I got to help you. And so that increases my longevity. The research is clear and you feel better. So, And we've talked a lot about how it's not always reciprocal, right? Like you may help me and then down the road, I'm helping someone else. It is not to be this balanced, like I have to pay this off back and forth and back and forth to make it, because we sometimes feel guilty, right? There's that guilt where you're helping me and well, I should be helping you. And You don't feel that about your patients on a call, do you? Like, do they come back and thank you? No, you don't even expect it, right? You're just there to help. We can't always recognize in other people when they're in the place that you were in. People are very private and they'll hold it to themselves. They haven't got to the point where they can reach out. Very often we say to ourselves, well, I should have seen this. Why didn't I see it? I never saw that. Was I not paying attention? And we have a lot of like guilt or shame associated with that. But people are complex and we can't always see it. But you did talk about holding space. So if we do recognize it, if we do have the opportunity, if someone does reach out to us, Holding space may not be a common term that everyone knows. It, it is you and I are more aware of it and and others in the circle. But how do people do that? What does that mean? How does it not just be a buzzword? And how are people sometimes handcuffed by, I'm not a counselor, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, as opposed to focusing on who they are and what they can be in that moment. And then how do they hold space for somebody? I think the biggest thing I've even learned along the journey with like my daughter, for example, is we can often get into, I want to fix it. I want to teach it. And that's always even my challenge in a moment is to holding space just literally often means shut up, lean in, let them talk, acknowledge and validate what they're feeling without judgment. It's exquisite presence without an exquisite solution without expectation that this space, this moment is going to solve a problem. It's not about that. It's about letting somebody else unfold in whatever manner they need to. In a messy way often. Often messy or and maybe even not the way you'd like them. Maybe you wish they would just say what you know they need to say. So it's dropping your expectation in the moment and really offering up this gentle space for somebody else to be who they need to be and just validate that experience for them without fixing it. You may inadvertently, and you should offer up and ask, like, is this something you'd like my help with in this moment? Would it be helpful for you if I gave you some numbers? And so checking in with what they need instead of assuming that they're coming to you to fix it versus they're coming just to be heard. And that, to me, is holding space. I don't know if that resonates with you. It's just a sacred space energetically you give to somebody where you're not doing anything except that holding the space. You create the safeness and this invitation that whatever they say or do in that moment, it's okay without being the fixer-doer problem solver. And then if you want to get into the fixing, doing, teaching, maybe just ask at the end. 
in embracing those moments just as much as you would embrace a joyful moment with them. Yeah. And to your point earlier, by the way, about exercising and you feel some stuckness, I want to talk about trauma just doesn't get stored in our tissues. So does joy. So does gratitude. So does being kind to the self. And so all the deposits we do in our emotional experiences get stored. And so we often talk about that book, The Body Keeps the Score, and all that is really good. But again, it's a, to me, often a singular focus on the pathogenic, the trauma, the stuff, and then not talking about, but that's why practicing gratitude and power posing and smiling and using the zygomatic muscle, going into nature, because that also gets stored in our bodies. And can we balance that experience in our tissues? The issues are in the tissues, but so are the good stuff. I need to come up with a saying for that. Let's finish off on then talking about, we started talking about how words matter, and we talked about the pathogenic, salutogenic, and you just touched on it again here, how very often posts and informative material is focused on trauma. Trauma, 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 trauma. And again, it's not about ignoring it or avoiding it, dismissing it. But yeah, maybe just expand more on that idea of the more we focus on trauma, the more sometimes we will prime ourselves for it and we get buried in it. And we forget to, again, equally balance this stimuli we're taking in with the positive and the healing. And even in the space of what I speak about, if we only use mindfulness to prevent PTSD, we've missed half the equation. So there's the balance, right? So mindfulness is very effective in the research for dealing with psychopathology, but it's very effective in building well-being. So when first responders I see, like I imagine, what if there were charities in the first responder community? Because there are a bunch that deal with solely supporting the first responder in PTSD and death by suicide. I don't see any organizations that are funded and money thrown at it just to do retreats for well-being and the first responder. Again, it speaks to, and not, not a criticism of first responders who run accounts and post that way, it speaks to the system that that's where our attention goes and that's where research money goes. And so it makes sense that that's what we see, but can we be mindful to balance out where our attention goes? And for every, I always, I've always said, for every buck we spend on PTSD, we should be spending two bucks on joy and equanimity for first responders because the cost over here is so great, not just even financial to the service, but what it does to the family, the person, the community, and our country, quite frankly. That drain of human capital and the risk we allow to happen could be more easily offset by a few extra bucks spent on training them on how your mind works, how to be with trauma, how to turn that difficulty into personal growth. Right. So it's not stealing from Peter to pay Paul. It's about doing both and recognizing that. Because like you said, when there are moments where the pathogenic model is what you need. Absolutely. But for people that aren't at that place, when you start to, and then you start, you start to make your way out of that space, and now you have room and time and capacity to take another step in the journey, well, I guess what you're saying is that that isn't readily available. So or do we more easily slide back because we haven't been able to get over the hump and actually move towards thriving? We spend a lot of time, which we should, trying to get out of surviving, but we get into living 
But is it fair to say then we're not really helping people figure out how to thrive? Yeah, my concern is, listen, we were struggling before the pandemic, and now resources and problems are even more of a threat to making that happen, unfortunately. And why I think it needs to get into base training even more, because selling, like, even reach for resiliency pre-pandemic was challenging, because probably for lots of reasons, mental you know, stigma, it doesn't address PTSD, is it going to fix the PTSD problem? It's like, that's not what health promotion is for, right? Filling a gap educationally. And here we are into year three, almost post-pandemic. Oof, people are suffering. We probably do need to throw money at exquisite resources to get people to first understand where the community's at, what they need, while we simultaneously train the new generation coming up. It's going to be a tough little while for a first responder community, I think. But if you're listening and you have an inkling like, ah, she's right, then maybe just start again, gently asking the question, what can I do to cause my best well-being while I'm working in the third year of a pandemic, while my resiliency tanks are maybe a little below half? It doesn't mean you don't give up. It's like the little tiny things can also still matter and cause stress tolerance to improve. And no matter what's going on around you organizationally or culturally, what can you choose to do for you? What ownership can you take? Yeah, moving from an internal, from an external locus of control back to internal, which just means first responders are notorious for this. If the organization ain't going to pay for your butt to do something, first responders won't do it. That's where each of the first responder community needs to take stock of. What is your responsibility in this career and in your own life that likely the service is not going to pay for you to do? And I think there's more recognition now of people going outside for tactical training on the skills of firefighting and understanding that their organization can't provide what they need so they go elsewhere. So unfortunately... And you can be right about that. Listen, you can be saying, well, that's not my job. I ain't doing that. Okay. Well, just know, but the consequence of that. Yeah, there's a cost. That, that you're right. And so the short term for you is like, yeah, I ain't doing that because you didn't pay for me to do that. Okay. All right. But play that tape to the end. Is it a financial cost or is it a life cost? Do the cost as a first responder that believes that what you're going to get when you're off on a two-year mental health illness and fighting WSIB. See how that works out. You can ask anybody. It's a very challenging road. How do people reach you if they want to contact you and find out more? Certainly they can go through you. They know you probably better. Instagram is the only one I'm sort of active on. Wealth, W-E-L-L-T-H underscore management dot I-N-C. Twitter, I have two accounts at WLund100 and WM. Email me at wendy at wealthmanagement.ca and you can start a 25-hour completely free, no upsell, no bullshit resource I opened up at the start of the pandemic on my website, wealthmanagement.ca. Click on courses, go to the public health and safety content and conversations course, 25 hours of recorded conversations with police, fire, medics, psychologists, and content from me and about four presentations I've done. So if you're not sure where to start, go there. You'll never hear from me again. You got to put your email in once, but I don't upsell on it. So go dabble and I recommend lots of things in there. You can start there. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me.